Business has always been about turning a profit, making money. But can it stand for something more? Something beyond dollars and cents? We think so. We think that today, business has a higher calling, a purpose to be fair and just, to do right by their workers, customers, communities, and the environment. And it turns out companies successful doing that also do better for their bottom line. When you see the Just Capital seal, it means this company is a force for good. Visit JustCapital.com to learn more. This is Take One with Bill Cameron. There's history in this city. I mean, to refer to children as like baby Al Capones is not appropriate. A look at the top stories of the week. Listen to the podcast at WLSAM.com. How much scrutiny do I have? You go scrutinize yourself. I get scrutiny every day. Now, here's Bill Cameron. This week, our old friend, former anchor and news director, John Dempsey, joins us with a very special guest. John, take it away. Thank you so much, Bill Cameron. I am John Dempsey, and I am honored to be here today to host this segment of Take One with Bill Cameron here on WLS. You might remember I was the news director and morning and afternoon drive anchor on WLS for 13 years before I retired a few years ago. And I asked Bill if I could come in today because there is someone I really would like you to meet. She is Meg Kissinger, award-winning reporter for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, who also teaches investigative reporting at Columbia University in New York. Meg is a proud graduate of Regina Dominican High School in Wilmette, where she grew up, spent her professional career documenting America's broken mental health system and how it fails many of the people it is supposed to help. Meg knows all too well about how mental illness can impact a family because she experienced unspeakable tragedy in her own family. Two of her six siblings took their own lives, and both of Meg's parents struggled with alcoholism, depression, and dramatic mood swings. Meg has just written a new memoir about her family called While You Were Out, an intimate family portrait of mental illness in an era of silence. Meg Kissinger, welcome to WLS. Thank you, John Dempsey. I'm so happy to be here with you. Well, I I want to say congratulations. Your book is getting rave reviews. You've been on the CBS Morning Show. You were on with Channel 2, Channel 9 here in Chicago. What has the reaction to the book been like for you? It's been great. Yes, thank you for asking that. Uh, I've been really heartened. I'm hearing from a lot of people who are relating to the story that my I tell about my family and about them opening that up about my travels as a reporter. I had a feeling that was going to happen. I was hoping that would happen because so many people do struggle with either they have mental illness or somebody they love does. And for a very long time, we really didn't have the language to talk about that. And I was hoping that by telling our, my family story, that could be an invitation to get other people to talk about what's going on with them. And that's proving to be true. Now, I want to say at the beginning, this interview is very personal for me because I am best friends with your brother, Bill Kissinger. We've known each other for a long time. We met at uh, WMAQ radio many years ago. He's literally the funniest person I've ever met. And you know that I've spent the last few decades trying to basically invite myself to a lot of your family functions and, trying to glom on and hope to be adopted by your family. So my apologies for that. <laughs> at the outset. We got an opening, John. Come on in. Uh, there's a committee, and I think yeah. I've been blackballed in the past, and you know, <laughs> some people are voting against me. Um, I want to read you a line from your book. 
Take two alcoholics, one with bipolar and the other with crippling anxiety, and let them have eight kids in 12 years. What could possibly go wrong? What? what? Yeah, <laughs> right. That was a little snarky of me to write that, John. I admit that. Um, but that's our family way of dealing the dark with dark humor. The dark right. humor. Yeah. So if we can't get a punchline out of this, what good is it? Yeah. Um, but in all honesty, you know, my mom and dad, who were lovely people, they were funny, they were kind, they were thoughtful, they were warm, but they were also ill. And they, they didn't have very good treatment for that. And they didn't have, um, again, ways to kind of express it or explain it to us. So as we grew up and witnessed, you know, this wacky behavior, uh, I mean, say wacky, but I, that's really underselling it, um, sometimes frightening, always concerning, uh, but, you know, again, always loving. Um, so that was confusing. And so when I say what could possibly go wrong, well, a lot went wrong, but it wasn't their fault. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't like this is, I didn't write this as a screed to blame my mom and dad at all. This is not a poor me. This is meant to be a full-throated reporter's look at how our family was failed by the mental health system and so many others are as well. You're from a huge, boisterous, German-Irish Catholic family, eight kids, I didn't know your mom, but I knew your dad very well. And he was just larger yeah. than life. He was outgoing. Yeah. He was funny. Yeah. He was hilarious. He always made you feel welcome. I remember playing golf with him and, and your brother, Billy, um, up at Canal Shores uh, near oh, the yeah. evanston Wilmette border. But your dad had a dark side, which I don't think I saw, but certainly you and your siblings did see it. The temper, the, the mood swings, the, the drinking, right? Sure. Yeah. He quit drinking actually pretty early in the game. Um, and I'm really proud of him for that. He, in, um, I think it was 1976. So a long time he lived until 2011. So he really spent the bulk of his, you know, half of his adult life sober, which is commendable. Um, that said, he did suffer from his demons. He was, you know, ultimately diagnosed as bipolar. But I think what my dad represents, you know, is the, um, again, the era where, where there wasn't um, really f great descriptions about what somebody was struggling with. So it was misunderstood by him, certainly, and by us as well. And um, my, my dad, yeah, he was a complicated guy. He, he ultimately... Um, I tell the story in the book about uh, on the night that my sister died, when my dad called us all into the living room and told us not to uh, reveal that she had died by suicide. He wanted us to say that it was an accident. And it was because he was afraid. Uh, he was he was afraid that she'd be denied a, a burial in the Catholic Church. Anyway, there, and, and stigma against mental illness, discrimination being what it was. But over the years, you know, as, as time rolled on, my dad really became himself an open book and learned, I think, through his AA meetings, you know, to be, to humble himself, to open himself up, to admit, you know, being powerless over alcohol in his case. Um, but I learned a great deal in watching him, that humility and that ability 
to bear yourself, uh, you know, lay yourself bare and, and to be a witness. And, and by the time my brother Danny got very sick and, and after he died also by suicide, um, my dad was really gung ho about us talking about it. Um, and I remember I was writing a story about it for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. And I, I told my dad that I was going to be doing this. And, and I, I said, what do you think about this? And he said, yep, go ahead, give him hell and tell him, you know, shame on you. We need to do more for people who suffer with mental illness. So I'm kind of taking that as my little, my little battle cry from my dad. Yeah, I mean, you document so expertly, you know, and, and beautifully in the book, the growth of your father, a man who had a lot of inner pain. Right. But as you point out, he did everything he could to conquer his demons by going to AA and, you know, uh, surrendering himself to a higher power, didn't he? Sure, but he is a human being, and he was a human being, and he struggled as we all do. But I, yeah, but I, I do think I learned a lot of lessons in watching him again for, as resilience and perseverance. And, um, and I think at the end of the day, you know, admitting our failures and our shortcomings and our foibles. And that's where, you know, I think growth and strength comes in. And you're, um, this is an era we're talking about, like the era that you grew up in, 1960s. People weren't talking about this stuff very much. And I know that you talk in your book in the 50s, your parents met, they both grew up in the Milwaukee area, they fell in love, and your dad, you know, proposes to your mom, who he didn't know had suffered from mental illness and depression and had been to a psychiatrist. He actually went to him before the wedding and said, hey, I'm an open book. This is my story. If you want to back out of the wedding, that's fine with me. And right. How did your dad yeah. take that that uh, overture? Yeah, from he was mom? freaked out. I mean, so and um, I think the term that she used, or at least in the telling of the story later on, was she said, "This is your get out of jail free card." <laughs> she, had a, she had a great sense of humor too. Yes. But um, it was a shocking thing, John, in 1951 to be acknowledging that you had seen a psychiatrist. And as my dad would later tell us, you know, he never knew anybody who had seen a psychiatrist. I actually went to the Milwaukee Library downtown to pull out a 1950 telephone book to see how many psychiatrists were listed in the phone book. Guess how many? Well, I put it in the book, so I was going to ask you to guess. Well, I, thought, I, I so I read the book, and so this okay. is my test. Yeah, uh, one, one or two, right? Yeah, there was one. There was one psychiatrist listed in the phone book in 1950 in Milwaukee. But the point is, my parents didn't come to their marriage with a clean slate. Nobody does. So, you know, the, their parents before them had challenges and her father, my, my grandfather, my mother's father suffered from depression. Um, my dad's mother, uh, who we knew very well, um, she was quite erratic in her behavior. So, you know, we intergenerational trauma is real. And so my mom and dad starting out this family, adorable, young, in love, you know, and bada bing, bada boom, before you knew it, they had eight kids in 12 yeah. years. I think what I've come to appreciate in, in putting this book together and also in my reporting over the years, you know, there there is re residual trauma and we're all informed by what's happened in our past. And that was very true of my mom and dad. 
And you write very movingly in the book about how you're five years old and, you know, living in Wilmette on Greenwood Avenue and you come down for breakfast one morning and your mother's gone and nobody tells you where she is. Your dad puts you and your sister Patty into the car and you drive down Lakeshore Drive down to a relative who lived uh, just across Lakeshore Drive from Oak Street Beach and he dropped you off there. You're five, and your sister Patty's year and a half younger. She's three. You're five. Nobody right. told you what had happened, and yeah. you later found out that your mom had been in a psych ward, right? Right. And yes. And, and and that word was never even spoken. You know that that nobody ever told me your mother's in a psychiatric hospital. She was just gone, and um, and it was never it was never explained. And then magically she was home, um, and I don't know how long she was gone. I can't really remember. And nobody, I can't get the medical records. I did get a ton of other medical records of my other family members, but I could never get my mom's uh, to my great disappointment. But um, I know that she was, she wasn't gone too terribly long, but then a couple months later, I come down again for breakfast and damn, if she isn't gone again. And this time she was gone for a little bit longer time. And I remember asking my grandmother, where's my mother? And she just said, uh, she kind of swatted me away. Like she was getting rid of a a common house fly and just said, you know, you don't need to know or whatever. And then I said, well, the nuns are going to want to know because I thought that would get to my grandmother that if the the nuns wanted to know, she would tell me anyway. uh, She just said, tell them she's got pneumonia. So it was a big mystery and it was scary. And it was, you know, I didn't know, did, did I do something to cause that? It was probably Billy. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> but um but it could have been me. Uh, the, i think the two of us were kind of the rascals of the family but yeah. but anyway nonetheless you know you assign yourself blame and here i am now i'm six but i'm in first grade and i i don't know it's scary but again that's how it was and i'm i'm just writing this story so that just to kind of give a little orientation you know nowadays gee, you listen to a Cub game and you hear a broadcast for mental health services, which the way the Cubs are playing, everybody yeah, needs People need it. Uh, yeah. People need it. Yeah. And we're not even going to talk about the Bears. But anyway, yeah. Hi, uh, yeah. the point Yeah, the point is we're now seeing these advertisements on billboards, uh, on br- baseball broadcasts. It's ubiquitous. You know, everywhere you go, you're seeing uh, if, if you need help, go and get help. We didn't have that kind of messaging in nineteen in the early nineteen sixties for sure. Right. We didn't right. Even have it in the seventies or probably eighties. But and we also didn't have things like Google. You know, I mean, our the extent of my medical knowledge was what I saw on Marcus Welby. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like uh, we did not have an orientation to yeah. what what illness was in general, but mental illness absolutely. Right. And that's where we get into the whole thing, just how if we think that there's secrecy around any kind of illness, that's especially true when it's mental illness. Yeah. Yeah. We are recording this interview on what would have been the 70th birthday of your sister, Nancy, who was the second oldest of the eight kids. And she tragically took her own life in 1978 at the age of 24. Um, it was, if, correct me if I'm wrong, it was her, she, she had tried to take her own life a number of times. This was her second attempt that day. Is, is yeah, that it was her second attempt that day. Correct. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 
that poor soul. And John, thank you for the shout out to Nancy. Wow. When I think of her as being 70, she mm-hmm. was a raving beauty. She was just so I stunning. I saw the photos. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She was a she was a babe. Really, really pretty. Um, and yeah, so and and she suffered greatly for a lot of her life. She really started getting sick when she was about 12 and she was acting out in school. And I want to think that today there would be school counselors who would notice Again, there's there'd be kind of more uh, resources available. People would flag her, and I think she would get help a lot sooner. Now that said, my mom and dad really were on top of it, and they really did get her to a, a psychiatrist. Unfortunately, it was the same psychiatrist that my mother went to, so <laughs> that was a little bit of a conflict. But, but they also they also spent a lot of money oh, to send yeah. her to a renowned mental uh, health hospital in, in Kansas, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. In Topeka, Kansas, yeah. which was world-class. Uh, that was a, a famous place, now closed. But um, yeah, and, and um, so the college funds, you know, a lot of, a lot of my parents' resources yeah. went helping Nancy because they were desperate. As, mm-hmm. as, all, as parents are today still, all parents are desperate when their kids are suffering and struggling. And that was certainly true of my mom and dad. And and your uh, younger brother, Danny, who is the seventh of the eight kids, you write in the book about how he reacted with anger after Nancy took her own life in 1978. He said, oh, suicide is the coward's way out. And then we flash forward 19 years, and Danny took his own life. He, I knew Danny very well. Mm-hmm. Um, he, I thought he was a great guy, but he had an edge to him. And as, as we learn in your book, he had a, a lot of deep anger issues. Yeah. He, he just dug himself into a hole by doing stupid things and breaking the law and losing his temper and, and things like that. Um, that was just a, a profound, a profound tra- tragedy with, with Danny. Yeah. It? And I think with, be, because we'd already been through this with Nancy, I think uh, we felt like, wow, how could we not, have gotten him help? How could we have not staved this off? And why is it that he ended up with the same sad ending? And you can't help but think, you know, everybody tells you, oh, it's not your fault. You know that intellectually, you know that, but uh, on a gut level, you beat yourself up and you wonder why couldn't we have done more to save him? And really that was a motivation a lot for this book was me asking those tough questions. Because guess what? <laughs> yeah, uh, we literally never sat down as a family to talk about what we went through, uh, and that's, I find that just um, impossible to believe. I called all of my brothers and sisters when I started this project to write this book, and well, first of all, I asked them, you know, like, should we? Should I do? Is this okay for me to do? And to a person, they said yes. And if so, one of them had said no, you probably would not have done it. No, because I love my brothers and sisters and I value my relationship with them. I, I was hoping, and I, I know because they're good people, uh, I was hoping that they would agree to this and thankfully they did. But yeah, I, I wasn't, you know, my we'd already been through enough trauma. I didn't, and, and as it is, I've already, I mean, this book is an intense book, John. Yes. And it, it is, there's a lot of stuff in here that is, you know, you're, you'll flinch when you read it. It's just, yeah. it's tough stuff. But 
again, if you're going to bear witness, you need to tell the full story. And I know that as a reporter and, you know, that's, those are the kinds of stories that I wrote. And so I wanted to, when I was turning the notebook around on myself and my family, I wanted that same scrutiny and that same uh, transparency. And so we couldn't glaze over, you know, anything, but um, that was, I thought, I think this, uh, I wanted to strengthen that to be the full truth. Well, it, it's a powerful book. It's well reported because you are a reporter. You you did a lot of uh, freedom of information requests to find medical records and, and things right. like that. But I got to say, it's also a very funny book. And it's, Meg, I know it's a hard read, but it's also an easy read because you're such a great writer. It just flows. And well, it's you. easy to get through. Does that sound weird that I'm saying? No, that? I mean, thank you for saying that. Um I'm lucky that I've got great material because I am Bill Kissinger's daughter and, and then Billy Kissinger's sister. So, you know, I do have, and among my, and my, all my other siblings are quite charming and hilarious too. And you know what? I'm so proud of them. So I think, you know, we, in the newspaper business, we love irony, right? Like that's our favorite. That's what, why we're in it. We Mm want to like take something, a universal truth or what we think is universal truth and turn it on its head. So, you're writing a book about, you know, mental illness and suicide. I want to put some funny stuff in there, A, as a treat to readers, because I'm asking them to do an awful lot of heavy lifting and reading about this dark and, you know, agonizing s- stuff. But also there's a lot of delight and there's a lot of humor uh, because that's how our life was. You know, Billy and I were talking about this not that long ago. Uh, we were like, you know, we had a great childhood. Frazier Thomas from Garfield Goose was yeah. your uh, next door neighbor. He was, and he put ketchup on his eggs, John Dempsey. I want your readers <laughs> to know that. Your readers <laughs> know that. He put ketchup on his, on his scrambled eggs, um, which I thought was weird, but apparently a lot of people do that, including my husband. Anyway, you know, I considered our family a loving and fun one. And, and I think that's the point of it is mental illness touches so, almost everybody. I really don't know anybody who doesn't have mental illness in their family. Now, varying degrees, but um, again, this book, I, I wanted it to be an invitation to, to have people feel comfortable to talk about their own situations and to realize they're not alone. And I think there's a lot of comfort in that. I, I get a lot of comfort when I hear other people's stories. And we're all just trying, you know, we're, we're, we are human beings are by nature troubled and and sometimes broken and we need each other and you know the week before danny died he wrote me a letter and and it was such a weird letter for him to write first of all he never wrote me a letter ever you Um, you had written him and he'd return it uh, unopened correct Uh, yeah so so when i got this letter from danny i knew that something was up and sure enough he was writing to tell me that this big revelation that he had mental illness and i thought well duh so you could tell he was unburdening himself which was turns out you know this was something of a suicide note sadly but anyway in that note he talked about how difficult it is to live with mental illness and that you act and you think in awkward ways and it's very uncomfortable and it's and it's and it's painful and he said only love and understanding can conquer this and I thought, well, God, that's the cheesiest thing I've ever read. Like, mm-hmm. are you working for Hallmark cards now or what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, the more I thought about it over the years, 
it's the perfect algorithm. So if you love somebody, you will try to understand them. And if you understand somebody, chances are, you know, you're going to ultimately love them. And then you're going to help them. You're going to find a way to make their life better. And you're going to sit with them. You're going to talk to them. You're going to let them unburden themselves. So that's in the spirit of Danny. I dedicate the book to Danny. And um, it is because of that love and understanding. Meg Kissinger is the author of While You Were Out, an intimate family portrait of mental illness in an era of silence. Meg, a pleasure. Thank you so much. And congratulations on this uh, monumental achievement. Thank you, John. I'm John Dempsey. Coming up, Bill Cameron with the Reporter Roundtable here on Take One with Bill Cameron here on WLS. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Let's get into season four, episode three, Facade. People get picked on. I got picked on. But Scabby Abby, Scabby of the whole school. Yeah, I, hurt me. I felt like it wasn't real. If I may, I want to defend the storytellers. The people who created the show wanted you to feel like these people were the worst people ever. They pretty much said the whole school of Smallville High are bad people. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen. You're listening to Take One with Bill Cameron on WLSAM 890. Listen to the podcast on WLSAM.com. Time for the roundtable now where we just get to tell the truth with Ray Long of the Tribune. Hey, Ray. Hey there, Bill. Greg Hines of Cranes. Welcome back, Greg. Sir. And Dave Stewart, former City Hall reporter. Hey, Dave. Hello, Bill. Well, Greg, major symbolism on the, uh, let's admit it, the less magnificent mile this week as the signature room atop the John Hancock Center closes. Why did this happen, Greg? It apparently happened, Bill, because they're not making money or not making enough money uh, to justify the uh, investment. I'll, I'll take the, I don't know anything more than the operator said, but they said that, hey, uh, tourism and uh, foot traffic along the mile uh, isn't what it was. Uh, that was kind of their stock and trade. Uh, uh, they referred to the hangover from COVID, uh, the crime problems that have continued to plague the city. Um, if you just walk up and down the street, you'll see lots of vacancies, big stores that used to be there that aren't there anymore. Um, you know, those are some of the people that would say, hey, let's, let's, go, up to, let's uh, go up to the top of the Hancock and have a drink or have dinner or whatever. Well, those people aren't there anymore. Uh, and it's a continuing problem for the city, parts of the city's economy, uh, certain areas, notably Fulton Market, are doing great, but, uh, but the Loop and the Mile are not doing great. And uh, uh, that's costing the city jobs. It's costing uh, the city income. And uh, it's one of the things that Mayor Johnson's going to have to deal with when he unveils his budget in a couple of weeks. Income taxes ain't what they were. What do you think, Ray? How much should we make of this? Well, it is a puzzling uh, situation that they close so quickly. Um, the uh, the place is, uh, you know, kind of one of those iconic locations in Chicago. Um, I went there for my wife's birthday. The only time I've been there, uh, took her there, and and uh, a lot of people have gotten engaged there. It's been a uh, place that you. Well, you know, may go once your life, or you, depending on your wallet, you may go once a week. But the uh, thing is, it's a really cool place. 
I don't know what they're going to do there. Maybe they'll put a, a Portillo's there now or something like that. <laughs> but it's a wonderful space. Somebody will probably try to pick it up and revive it. But, it, uh, you know, it was a great place to go. Yeah. Dave, what's your take on this? Well, it's it's the outcome of a number of things. First of all, the decline in lunch business everywhere downtown uh, took a took a hit when COVID happened, and 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 the work home from work from home uh, thing really took off, and it hasn't really recovered. And we don't know where that's going to settle out. So until the work from home thing is. Uh, settled that's not going to be good for restaurants everywhere but this is such an iconic space and such a an attractive space i can't help but believe that when things get back to normal whatever the new normal is that someone won't find the uh, uh the, the place attractive enough to put an investment in i'd like to also see some more reporting on the ppp money that the most recent operators of that place took and and what happened to that what they did with that money too not suggesting there was anything untoward done but just like to see some reporting on that yeah good point greg i see there's a bit of a dust up between the mayor and the governor over how to handle the migrants the asylum seekers who are arriving by several busloads a week what is this dust up about it's about uh, who wears the jacket, Bill. Uh, it doesn't just involve Brendan Johnson and, and uh, J.B. Frisker. It involves Joe Biden, too. Uh, in one degree or another, everybody's pointing their fingers at, at all. They're pointing their fingers at them while they're all collectively pointing at the Republicans and the Republicans are pointing back. The situation is that uh, there's unprecedented numbers of immigrants, uh, asylum seekers, coming through the southern border. Uh, under our laws, uh, the Biden administration has decided to let them stay while their cases are adjudicated. Uh, but the numbers are such that it is really overwhelmed cities along the border. Uh, and it's not only conservative Republican governors like Greg Abbott from Texas or, uh, or uh, DeSantis from Florida, but the, the mayors of uh, Democratic cities like San Antonio uh, who are saying, hey, we can't handle this, uh, so we're going to. We're going to spring to uh, move those people to other cities like Chicago that have declared themselves to be welcoming cities, uh, uh, havens. Um, if you declare yourself to be a refuge center, uh, you're going to have to deal with it sometime. And boy, are we dealing with it. And the question is, how do we pay for it? Because the amount of money is, is well into the, into the nine figures, hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, the mayor has made it clear he'd like the feds to do more. He'd like Pritzker to do more. Pritzker says he's doing his shape. His his uh, piece uh, uh, suggested that he didn't think much of the mayor's proposal to house immigrants in Chicago January's and tenants. I agree with him on that. But it wasn't appreciated by the mayor's office, so they kind of fired back and said, hey, J.B., open up your wallet. Um, it's a mess. And until the flow of immigrants uh, lessens up, I don't see it getting any better. Uh, we really need some decent long-term solutions here. We need we need buildings and all the services that come with it, uh, not tents and fly by the seat of your pants kind of temporary social services. But uh, nobody seems to have come up with that yet. Now, Ray, neither Pritzker nor Johnson are up for re-election anytime soon. But what do you think the political impact of the migrant story will be on the upcoming 2024 elections? Yeah, it's just... Um uh, a really boiling issue, and it's boiling for uh, good and bad reasons. Uh, a, a good reason is, is that 
there's just not the welcoming map that we say we have for this city that's being fully un- unveiled and unrolled here for all the migrants coming in here for a quote-unquote welcoming city. Um, there is also a jam on where everybody should go, and there are vacant buildings all over this city that could be used, but, uh, you know, for some reason they can't uh, untangle the red tape or or think outside the box to get people inside those uh, buildings. And uh, there are neighborhoods all over the place, or at least people inside of neighborhoods all over the place that don't want to see these uh, outsiders coming into their neighborhood. It's a not-in-my-backyard syndrome that sometimes gets uh, vitriolic in in some of the public meetings. But... um, It still comes down to, A, they're human beings, they need help, they need it now. Uh, We're we're, uh, folks who have people elected to sit in the big chair to make the decisions. they got to make the decisions. They can't just throw up their hands and throw more money at it. Um, There are uh, groups that uh, are trying to help out. Um, There are churches that should be opening their doors. There are many, many possible solutions if we just uh, treat people like our neighbor. Dave, what do you think? How does the politics work on migrants? The politics uh, is yet to be played out, but I'm afraid it's going to get worse before it gets better because we're seeing uh, one of the outcomes that we didn't want to see is that people from these migrant groups, individuals, are starting to be targeted. Uh, We've seen in the past week uh, a group at one high school uh, being beaten up by kids from that school, older students from that school. These are uh, migrant students who are living in a shelter somewhere and going to this high school to to be educated, and they're set upon uh, presumably because of their nationality and and beaten up. We're also seeing a few occasions of... uh, uh, migrants or refugees being involved in the commission of crime. So this is going to only get worse before it gets better. Responsibility-wise, without these elections the, uh, to put pressure on politicians, it's hard to say. The ultimate responsibility, of course, comes with to the Biden administration and to uh, the federal government, but even in the short term, the money is, is going to come from local people, and the local people are going to say, wait a minute, what about our homeless situation? What about uh, the needs that we have. What about our crime? Why uh, why is this a priority over why we elected you, Mr. Pritzker, why we elected you, Mr. Johnson? Well, let, let me just add one more thing here. Mayor Johnson and uh, his Chicago Department of Business Affairs yesterday, or I guess it was uh, uh, September 28th, which would have been Thursday, um, came up with a request for people to uh, find vacant storefronts, help them identify vacant storefronts uh, and negotiate short-term leases with landlords uh, to help out uh, small businesses, et cetera. And I'm thinking, man, can't that be coordinated with the uh, effort to find places for migrants to stay? Hey, Greg, I see the United Auto Workers are now striking the Ford Chicago Assembly plant. How bad for business is this? Well, it depends on how long the strike goes on, Bill. Um, 
Uh, it's uh, so far we're in about about two weeks into it, which is probably about average. Uh, if it goes much longer, though, it's, it is going to begin to take an economic toll because uh, even though uh, the strikers are getting benefits or whatever, um, uh, uh, they're not spending the kind of money they would in their local economies, which means there's less money for restaurants and uh, and uh, grocery stores and everything else there than there would be usual. Um, uh, we won't know until we know the answer to two questions. When's it going to end and what are the terms going to be? The terms are almost certainly going to be they're going to get a big raise. Uh, that's going to result in higher costs for, for auto buyers. Uh, but say uh, 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 the union is arguing it's going to come out of profits. Uh, maybe it will to some degree, but I think it's also going to come out of uh, consumers' pockets. This is the way the world works. Um, so the answer to your question is, if you get to see, uh, uh, so far it's uh, – a uh, not terribly uh, uh, harmful uh, strike, but it could drag on, and the impact long run could be uh, a little more significant. Hey, Ray, in the Mike Madigan story, I see that the Securities and Exchange Commission has now come up with its own set of charges in the ComEd 4 scandal. Uh, reduce this to layman's terms for us. Yes, this is a new uh, development in the Mike Madigan ongoing scandal uh, with uh, ComEd and its lobbyists and uh, its uh, alleged uh, inappropriate activities. Uh, The Securities and Exchange Commission reached a settlement uh, with Commonwealth Edison and Exelon Corporation. It's uh, the ComEd's parent company. And uh, the SEC charged Exelon and ComEd with fraud and uh, it is over the the entire scheme about uh, the companies trying to influence and reward Madigan by putting a, a variety of, of uh, his pals into no-work jobs, uh, putting somebody on the uh, board of directors of ComEd who he wanted, and uh, giving a, a clout law firm some business, from ComEd and also uh, uh, sending bushels of uh, uh, ComEd college internships to people in Madigan's 13th Ward. Um, The interesting thing is that Exelon is going to be paying $46.2 million in penalties to reach a settlement here uh, with the SEC. But former ComEd CEO Ann Promajori who you remember was already convicted in the ComEd 4 case earlier this year, will still be um, up and litigating her case with the the, uh, Securities and Exchange Commission. So it's still a case that is ongoing. We know also that uh, we have not too far in the distant future, um, former Speaker Michael Madigan will be on trial April first next year on a sweeping case of racketeering uh, charges. That's Ray Long of the Tribune. Thanks to him, also to Greg Hines of Cranes and former City Hall reporter Dave Stewart. This week we got a new Chicago police superintendent, Larry Snelling. Up next, what a retired cop thinks this new 
superintendent will face. The Ed Milet Show showcases the greatest peak performers sharing their journey, knowledge, and thought leadership. This is one of the all-time best pieces of advice ever given on the show. Actor Rain Wilson. The number one thing that psychologists point to with young people of why they are struggling so much in this mental health epidemic is they don't have resilience. So how do you build resilience if you don't understand suffering itself? The Ed Milet Show is available on YouTube or wherever you listen. You're listening to Take One with Bill Cameron on WLSAM 890. So what kind of Chicago Police Department is the new superintendent, Larry Snelling, inheriting? Listen to retired police lieutenant John Garrido III, who served for more than 30 years, at this week's House Judiciary Committee field hearing on Chicago crime. We often hear that the silent majority supports the police, yet... Unfortunately, our silent majority here in Chicago is asleep at the wheel. Despite having over 1.5 million registered voters here in Chicago, nearly 1 million stayed home during the last mayoral election. And those numbers happen again and again, over and over every election. The result is allowing a radical minority electing politicians with agendas that don't serve the broader community's interests. We have a mayor that actually scolds reporters for demonizing children when asking questions about the mobs of teens that regularly rampage throughout our downtown business district, destroying property and stealing anything they can get their hands on. Lack of voter interest has given us legislators that changed the threshold for felony theft from $300 to $500, and then they gave us Kim Fox, who increased it from $500 to $1,000. So as long as you steal something that's under $1,000, you're not going to get charged with a felony in Cook County. Illinois state legislators also passed the 800-page Safety Act in the early hours of the morning with little to no discussion whatsoever. Uh, They passed this act and it gave us no cash bail that just went into effect last week. On the first day of no cash bail last week, individuals charged with violent crimes were released without any restrictions. Two people were charged with robbery and a guy was accused of punching a Chicago police officer in the face and they went home without restrictions and there was no request request by the prosecutor for a detention hearing. Another offender was sent home without any restrictions after being accused of attacking four police officers and sending two to the hospital. Yet again, the prosecutor's office did not ask for any detention hearing. Chicago politicians also often make sweeping generalizations that don't reflect the complexities of law enforcement. These same politicians publicly refer to our police department as systemically racist. This not only undermines the public trust but also affects officers' morale and effectiveness. Constant political interference has had a detrimental impact. In just the first 100 days since Mayor Johnson was sworn into office on May 15, 2023, we've had over 200 homicides, 900 people have been shot, 2,500 robberies, 5,000 stolen cars, 2,000 burglaries, and 300 carjackings. Since January of 2020, almost 15,000 people have been shot in the city of Chicago, and almost 3,000 have been murdered. The problem is it's become so normalized here that those numbers aren't even shocking to us anymore, and they're not even shocking to the general public. Department policies, lack of manpower, and Illinois laws have impacted our ability to make arrests as well, dropping over 83% from 225,000 arrests in 2006 to the last few years, we've been averaging about 38,000 arrests a year, a significant drop. 
Catalytic converter thieves are now armed and they're shooting at homeowners and residents that confront them. Carjackers are getting younger and younger. Most of them are under the age of 18 years old. As a matter of fact, uh, they just arrested four of them a few days ago. One was as young as 12 years old. Officers are retiring and resigning at alarming rates. We're currently over 2,000 officers short on the Chicago Police Department. And of the 1,100 officers that left last year, 350 of them were resignations, which used to be unheard of here. And those resignations, the majority of them are lateral transfers. So they're not leaving law enforcement, they're leaving Chicago law enforcement. Officers are second-guessing themselves. Uh, with a job that requires you to make split-second decisions, second-guessing yourself can make, bring devastating mistakes. One example was an officer who was fighting with an offender on PCP. He was able to overcome her and repeatedly bang her head against the concrete while, this, while her partners and other officers tried to tase him and tried to subdue him. They subsequently got him in custody, but not before she sustained massive head injuries and permanent brain damage. The one thing that she said afterward was she thought she was going to die and she knew that she should shoot him, but she didn't do it. She chose not to because she didn't want her family and the department to go through the scrutiny that would be made public the next day in the news. And it's not just laws that make our communities unsafe. These elected officials have discarded experience and used race and gender to select the leaders of our department. The last superintendent, David Brown, was probably the worst of all. He brought us scarecrow policing, excessive canceled days off that exhausted our officers, politically motivated punishments and penalties for minor infractions, and promotion after promotion of inexperienced officers based solely on their gender and the color of their skin. We have people now in this department that have actually gone from the rank of sergeant to deputy chief in 10 months, or they've gone from sergeant to commander in less than two months and they haven't been given the opportunity to learn their roles in those positions before they move on to the next rank, which not only impacts morale in the department, but also impacts the quality of leadership. And probably the worst statistic of all is our police suicide rate. The national average for law enforcement is 30% above the national average. Here in Chicago, it's 60% above the national average. We usually average about two to three officers a year that take their lives, last year seven took their lives. Chicago and Illinois politicians have come together to create a toxic work environment like we've never experienced before. These policies and legislation have made our communities less safe and made it even more dangerous to be a Chicago police officer. We can't afford to let the silent majority sit quietly anymore and I hope with hearings like this and repeatedly speaking about it that hopefully we can get the word out that elections have consequences. And they need to start paying attention to who they're voting for and who they're putting in office because the consequences so far have been devastating. Retired Police Lieutenant John Garita III at this week's House Judiciary Committee field hearing here in Chicago. Well, that's our show for this week. Thanks to Jonathan Bregman and Michael Garay for production assistance. I'm Bill Cameron. You've been listening to Take One with Bill Cameron. Unedited interviews with Chicago newsmakers and compelling discussions about local breaking news. Take One with Bill Cameron on WLSAM 890. Podcasts can be heard at WLSAM.com. 
Stacking Benjamins with Joe and his good friend OG not only has great financial insight, it's laid back with humor too. The quiet luxury trend is out and loud budgeting is in. Are we tired of the pet names? Yeah, because I'm loud and obnoxious, so this fits right in with me. I'm like, yes, finally budgeting for me. (laughs) I get to walk into a restaurant and go, I'm cheap as hell, and you're not getting a tip. Live from Doug's Budget. (laughs) Find out more by searching the Stacking Benjamins podcast wherever you listen.